Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when the so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we continue special coverage of the radiation leak at the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant in Carlsbad, New Mexico. We revisit Don Hancock of Southwest Research and Information Center about what is known about the radiation leak, the radiation levels, the protocols that are being followed, and where we deserve to be skeptical. We also talk with Dr. Catherine Euler of Mama Bears Against Nukes, based in Arizona in proximity to WIP, and she talks to us about how to interpret the radiation information that we've been getting. Those interviews, plus numbnuts of the week, some protection tips for dealing with a plutonium radiation leak, and the Radcast Radiation Weather Report, all coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, February 25th, 2014, and here is the week's anti-nuclear news. Last week, just as Nuclear Hot Seat was being uploaded, we got the news flash that Sister Megan Rice... The 84-year-old nun who staged a peaceful protest at a Tennessee defense facility where enriched uranium for nuclear bombs is stored was sentenced to 35 months in prison. Rice asked the judge to sentence her to life in prison. Her statement read in part, Please have no leniency with me. To remain in prison for the rest of my life would be the greatest gift you could give me. She and her two co-defendants, Gregory Bortig Obed and Michael Wally, said that they considered that God was using them to raise awareness about nuclear weapons, and they viewed their break-in as a miracle. Rice testified at trial that she was surprised the group made it all the way to the interior of the secured zone without being challenged, and that plant operations were suspended. That stunned me, she said. I can't believe they shut down the whole place. U.S. District Judge Amul Thapar said he was concerned they showed no remorse. I don't blame him for that. The judge said he wanted the punishment to be a deterrent for other activists. Good luck with that. The three defendants cut through a chain-link fence surrounding the Y-12 National Security Complex, walked nearly a mile cutting through three more fences and breaching what was supposed to be the most tightly secured uranium processing and storage facility in the country. If that's the most secure, I'd hate to see the least secure. It was not until hours later that a guard finally confronted the activists. Mary Evelyn Tucker, director of the Forum on Religion and Ecology at Yale University, compared the nuns' use of nonviolent protest to, quote, the lineage of transformation employed by Mahatma Gandhi, Nelson Mandela, and Martin Luther King. Judge Thapar said, as much as he respected, and that is an actual quote, he used the word respected, their beliefs, he did not think the ends justified the means. So, as he said, you can't go breaking into a federal facility because you believe you're protecting the future of the planet. Sounds like a good reason to me. But the judge did say over and over again, 
how much voice he believes these people have and how much sway they can have towards effecting change. Considering the beauty, heart, and spirit of Sister Megan Rice, you ain't seen nothing yet. There is a petition up to have Sister Rice released because she is serving more time than anyone ever did for the financial meltdown that took place because of Wall Street. We will have a link up to that petition on the website, nuclearhotseat.com slash blog, under episode number 140. Traces of radiation have been found approximately half a mile northwest of the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant in Carlsbad, New Mexico, after a radiation leak last week. Tests by the Carlsbad Environmental Monitoring and Research Center, CMERC, showed evidence of trace amounts of americium and plutonium on an air filter as of Wednesday afternoon. According to CMERC Director Russell Hardy, the levels detected during this time period are higher than the normal background levels of radiation. Their presence during this specific time frame appears to indicate a small release of radioactive particles from the WIP underground exhaust shaft in the brief moments following when the radiation event occurred. Note the use of diminishing adjectives. Hardy says the levels are the highest ever detected at or around the site. They are far below the levels deemed unsafe by the Environmental Protection Agency, but a way to interpret what the EPA is saying will be coming on our series of three interviews dealing with this story in just a few moments. A second whistleblower at the troubled Hanford Nuclear Power Reservation in Washington State has been fired. Until Tuesday, February 18th, Donna Bush was the manager of environmental and nuclear safety at the Hanford Nuclear Reservation. Though her employer, Hanford Cleanup Subcontractor URS, denies that Bush's firing was tied to her ongoing complaints about safety concerns, in other words, doing her job. On CBS This Morning, she said that she believes that her firing sends an ominous message. Asked if she feels like she's a target, Bush said, absolutely. In October, Bush and her colleague, fellow safety official Walter Tamoseitis, raised technical issues and received harassment and retaliation. Tamosaitis was fired in October. Both he and Donna Bush have been outspoken about dangers at the plant. Among their biggest concerns is a design flaw they claim could lead to a deadly hydrogen explosion or worse, a nuclear chain reaction. I just want to know why we insist on calling them whistleblowers when what they are is truth-tellers and heroes. The Obama administration has signed off, as of last Thursday, on a $6.5 billion with a B dollar loan guaranteed to help Georgia Utilities build the nation's first new nuclear reactors in more than three decades. Energy Secretary Ernest Moniz, 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 traveled to the Plant Vogel site in East Georgia to announce the loan aid for Southern Company and Oglethorpe Power, another $1.8 billion with a B dollar loan for a third company involved in the plant, MEAG, is still in the works. 
Stumbling blocks have delayed the loan for four years, not long enough, and stalled a broader nuclear revival. Yay! Critics pointed out safety concerns surrounding nuclear power plants and cited the nuclear disaster at Japan's Fukushima nuclear plant. Catherine Fuchs of Friends of the Earth said, Fewer than three years have passed since the tragedy at Fukushima demonstrated that nuclear reactors can never be safe, yet the President and Energy Secretary are ignoring its lessons. Think it has anything to do with all of those election donations that came from the nuclear industry to President Obama? Energy Secretary Moniz said he huddled with Georgia Power's executives to reach a final agreement after years of delays. Moniz said, If we don't move out with these kinds of projects, we won't be ahead of the train. Old saying, those who are in front of the train risk being run over. A French government meteorological site shows that the highest radiation levels immediately after Fukushima were directly over Salt Lake City, Utah, and surrounding areas on March 20th of 2011. This was the most intense concentration of radiation anywhere in the world at that time, including Fukushima, and they have a graphic to prove it. In a story that may or may not be related, bald eagles are reported as dying at a rate much higher than normal, and it is not from West Nile virus as previously claimed. Fifty-four eagles have been found sick or dead in six counties in Utah. Clinical signs in eagles include head tremors, paralysis, and progressive seizures. West Nile virus, originally named as the cause of these deaths, has rarely been observed in wildlife in North America during the winter. Another possible cause listed was lead poisoning. But Charles Hardy, public policy director for Gun Owners of Utah, an unlikely ally I know, believes the tests on eagles that found signs of lead poisoning are not conclusive. He said, When they've tested, they've found that an animal had somewhat elevated lead levels, and then they stopped looking. Officials at the Wildlife Rehabilitation Center have their own theories about what is causing this illness and death in the bald eagles, and these theories include radiation from Fukushima in Japan. Speaking of Japan, TEPCO announced on Tuesday, February 24, that a cooling fan for the spent fuel pool at Unit 4 had stopped working. And a warning siren went off. Can you imagine the panic? The unit cooling system stayed offline for approximately four hours before it was restarted. A nearby electrical cable may have been damaged during excavation work. More from TEPCO as they announced last Thursday that 100 tons of water containing record high levels of radioactive substances had overflowed from a storage tank near the number four reactor building. The highly contaminated water flowed over a barrier around a containment tank and is purportedly being absorbed into the already saturated ground. This according to TEPCO. The leak reported on Thursday is one of the largest since TEPCO reported last summer about 300 tons of radioactive water that had leaked from a tank. Commissioner Toyoshi Fukita of the Nuclear Regulatory Authority of Japan said the safety system was supposed to prevent such accidents, but it failed. 
It's a very serious problem. He wins the Understatement of the Week Award. According to our friend Iori Mochizuki of the essential blog Fukushima Diary, TEPCO holds approximately 40,000 samples of highly contaminated water and is planning to reanalyze past samples to gain accurate results. It is estimated that TEPCO will not complete the reanalysis anytime soon. It's supposed to dispose of the samples three months after the analysis, but in reality, they cannot dispose of them because the radioactive density is too high. Very high levels of accumulated radioactive cesium have been detected in the mud of hundreds of reservoirs used to irrigate farmland in Fukushima Prefecture, where agriculture is a key industry. Prefectural authorities are asking the central government to remove the waste, but... The central government of Japan says that reservoirs, many of which are located in residential areas, are not covered by its decontamination program. Somebody forgot to read the fine print. And now... Nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, numbnuts out of week. In the Olympics of numbnutsery, this story takes the gold, silver, and the bronze. Tokyo traditionally celebrates the Odaiba Snow Festival. To do so, they need snow, so this year, not having any on hand, they trucked it in. Where did this snow come from? Narahamachi City, located just four to five kilometers, meaning about three miles, south of Fukushima Daiichi. Not only was this highly suspect snow picked up and then trucked into Tokyo. It was dumped in the middle of Tokyo, not far from an area designated for the future 2020 Olympic Stadium that's going to be built for the Olympics. They shovel the snow into trucks for transit only three miles south of Fukushima. Bronze! They dump it in Tokyo. Silver! And there it is, right close by to the place where the world's most elite athletes will be running their hearts out and breathing their lungs really deeply of the air in 2020 if the Olympics do stay in Tokyo. The judges give that one a 5.9, 5.8, and yes, a perfect six, and another perfect six, gold! Triple numbnuts with a half gainer. Nuclear hot seed, numbnuts out of week. In the international news, the BBC reports that the likely scale of the radioactive plume of water from Fukushima due to hit the west coast of North America should be known in the next two months. Researchers from the Bedford Institute of Oceanography have been sampling waters along a line running almost 2,000 kilometers due west of Vancouver, British Columbia. By June of last year, they were detecting quantities of radioactive cesium-137 and 134 along the sampling line's entire length. One of these models anticipates a maximum concentration by mid-2015 of up to 27 becquerels per cubic meter of water. Dr. Ken Busler from the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution expects that the Fukushima-based radiation will be evident very shortly in U.S. waters. To date, no U.S. federal agency has yet picked up 
monitoring responsibilities. What could they possibly be waiting for? Bad news and maybe kind of sort of better news we hope, fingers crossed, out of the Ukraine. On Thursday, February 20th, protesters captured the atomic power plant in the city of Rovno. The attackers occupied administrative buildings, burned the files to the central computer, then, after establishing control over the main energy resource of the province, didn't know what to do with it. Luckily, as of the next day, February 21st, a settlement was reached between the Ukrainian rebels and the government officials standing down from the crisis. However, no word has been reached about what's going on in Rovno. And French nuclear giant EDF will have to carry out maintenance to fix excess corrosion on fuel rods in 25 of the 58 French nuclear reactors. This according to a spokeswoman for ASN, the French equivalent of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Tests have shown that unacceptable levels of corrosion have been found on the fuel rods, which hang into reactor pools and power the nuclear reactor. EDF has already estimated that some 55 billion euros, or 75 billion American dollars, of investment is required to extend the lifespan of its entire fleet for a further 10 years. Guys, just save the money, shut them down, and put all that money towards renewables. If I ruled the world... But I don't, so let's just get to the interviews. But first, can we have a drum roll and a ta-da? My nuclear memoir, Yes, I Glow in the Dark, One Mile from Three Mile Island to Fukushima and Beyond, is up and ready for its launch this Thursday, February 27. Woohoo! To whet your appetite for this very personal nuclear reaction, I have posted a free excerpt up on the website, NuclearHotSeat.com. Just fill out the info in the big yellow box, and you will have a PDF that takes me from landing at Harrisburg Airport five days before the accident to what happens immediately after the bullhorn comes down the street. And then if you can buy the book on February 27th, that would be great. Buy it on that day, and it pushes up my ranking on Amazon. Or buy it any time after that. I think you'll enjoy the read. The waste isolation pilot plant in Carlsbad, New Mexico, and its recent radiation leak remain an important story. We caught up again with Don Hancock of Southwest Research and Information Center, a 43-year-old nonprofit organization based in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Don gave us great information last week, and I called him up this morning for an update. Don Hancock, welcome back to Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you. Last week when we spoke, there was only a little information about the radiation leak at the WIP plant. And since then, there have been some very alarming or some would say alarmist reports on the Internet that the radiation leak was catastrophic and people should be leaving the area. What is it that we know for sure at this time? We have a very few readings from air radiation monitors by the Carlsbad Environmental Research Center, CMERC, with one of their air monitors and the Department of Energy's air monitors. Both of them show 
using terms that some of your listeners may understand, a few millirems worth of readings in those air monitors. So there are releases outside the site. There are many air filters that have been taken off to be sampled in the labs that we don't yet have results from. So there's still a lot more to know. But so far, the amounts of radioactivity are far less than catastrophic. But the situation isn't over yet. And one of the things that will be important is to determine how much contamination is on the surface at or near the WIP site and what's going to be done to try to clean that up. We're a long ways. I mean, we're asking the question, but we're a long ways to having an answer to it. How far away has the radiation been found? Confirmed radiation from the release of the underground has at this point been confirmed six-tenths of a mile away from the exhaust shaft, which is where the radiation should have come out. That doesn't mean it hasn't gone farther than that. In fact, some of the DOE readings that are low readings but are farther distance could also be. So the answer is we don't know how far it could have gone. And again, when you have plutonium and americium that are now in the soil, it doesn't necessarily stay in the soil when winds come up. So winds could take it quite far away, which is why, again, I have a concern about trying to clean up as much as possible what's out there, but some of what's out there and is moving around will be hard to find and will be hard to clean up. So this is a continuing problem. But in terms of how far it has gone, this is not like radioactive fallout from nuclear bomb testing where you had bombs that were high in the air and got up in the clouds and, you know, went around the world, et cetera. Uh, there's no reason to believe at this point that any of the radiation so far has gone a great distance from WIP. But, but as I say, we don't know how far away it's gone, and that's one of the questions that needs to be figured out. What, if any, signs are there that the leak is ongoing? Well, they still have amounts of radiation that they're reading in the underground at WIP. And there, of course, the Department of Energy is saying the filter system is 99.97% effective. We don't know that that's true because we don't have laboratory results back of how much radioactivity those filters are actually catching. And as I say, we are a long ways from having all the sampling we need in the above ground to know how much is out. So we can presume that minute amount can still be coming out through the filter system, even if the filter system is working perfectly. The filter system doesn't work 100% perfectly. 99.97%, if it is working that well, is good, but that means there's three hundredths of a percent that is getting out. So it will be a continuing problem until all of the contamination, both underground and above ground, is cleaned up. When you talk about testing the filters, the sampling being tested, who is going to do those samples? And is there any independent outside supervision? The Carlsbad Environmental Monitoring and Research Center, CMERC, is funded by the Department of Energy, but is 
part of New Mexico State University. So it is at least semi-independent, and they have a lab that's been in existence for a long time uh, before WIP opened, and so they're doing sampling, uh, and their laboratory is analyzing. The Department of Energy has laboratory that they're using. The state of New Mexico, over time, will have some samples that it can do an independent lab. So the answer to the question is the laboratories that do this work are licensed laboratories, so they have requirements that they're supposed to meet, and protocols, etc. The, the basic safety check with this or other kind of sampling is you have multiple labs that are doing testing of the same samples, what's called split sampling, where Part of the sample goes to one lab and part of the same sample goes to another lab and you get results and you can compare so you can see, you know, if that they are comparable. So that will be the ultimate kind of review of, of what's going on. Do I wish there were additional safeguards and sampling? The answer to that is yes. I hope long-term one of the results of this will be maybe that there will be some additional independent monitoring, but we are, in essence, having less monitoring now than we used to because for 14 years of WIP operations, nobody had found anything, so people started thinking, oh, well, you know, nothing bad's going to happen. Well, now we know that's not true. Something bad has happened, and unfortunately, other bad things could happen in the future. The belief that is out there currently is that the accident was caused by part of the salt ceiling falling in and crushing some drums of waste, which is what released the radiation. Does that sound like a likely scenario? And if so, what's the chance of an accident of that kind happening again? We don't know what happened, and to their credit, the Department of Energy and the operating contractor have said publicly, including publicly last night at a town hall meeting in Carlsbad, that they don't know what happened. And they won't know what happened at least until they get into the underground. When they get into the underground, when workers are able to get into the underground and see what's happening, presumably they'll be able to figure out what happened, but they may or may not be able to figure out. It may be easy to figure out or not so easy to figure out. Can a roof fall happen? Yes. In fact, the first underground area that has waste put in it, starting in 1999, only four of the seven rooms were actually used because of the concern of the potential of a roof collapse in those other three rooms. And so three of the underground rooms that were supposed to handle waste at WIP have been empty and will always be empty. So the idea that can the ceiling collapse and fall on workers or drums and cause a release, yes, that clearly can happen. That's different than saying we know that that's what happened in this particular case. A while back, according to research I did, Sandia National Laboratories did sonar tests and determined that there was a pressurized brine reservoir underlying as much as 80% of the WIP site. Might seepage or some kind of erosion from this brine reservoir have contributed to the radiation leak at this time? We know there is brine reservoir underneath WIP, not just because of seismic readings, but because a drill hole, WIP-12, was drilled within the bounds of the WIP site a mile north of where the waste currently is being emplaced. 
1981 to demonstrate whether there was actually brine there or not. And guess what? It struck pressurized brine that flowed to the surface for four days before it could be capped off. So, yes, there is pressurized brine underneath the whip site. There is also proven reserves of oil and natural gas directly underneath where the waste is. So the idea that the waste could get out either because in the future people drill into it or there's some kind of a, a breach from pressurized brine, those things are possible. Another thing that can happen is that there are more than 100 operating oil and gas wells within a mile of the boundary of the WIP site today as we speak, and there are more all the time. It's, this is a very active oil and gas production area. So when things like fracking start happening around the WIP site, could there be problems caused by fracking? The answer to that is yes. So there are lots of things that could happen. Whether any of these have happened yet or whether they are things that could just happen in the future, as far as we know, they are just things that could happen in the future. So as I say, I don't know what happened in the underground that caused the release they said one possible thing that could have happened but shouldn't have happened would have been a full breakdown of the system is whatever containers are leaking could have been leaking when they arrived at WIP. Remember, all the waste that's underground at WIP had to come from other places. And the most recent shipments have come from Idaho National Lab, the Los Alamos plant in New Mexico, and the Savannah Riverside in South Carolina. It is theoretically possible that the drums were leaking when they got to WIP, were leaking when they were put in the underground, and it just took them a long time to figure out they were leaking. That, in theory, is possible. I don't think that's what happened. I don't think the radiation monitoring system was so bad that that, that would have happened. People can speculate about all kinds of things. At this point, what I am trying to do and encouraging other people to do is let's get as much sampling, accurate sampling done and data out as much as possible so people can see what the data are showing about what's there. When there is a good plan to get a few people underground to try to figure out what's happening and to make sure whatever release is happening isn't still happening more, that needs to be done. The contamination that now exists in the underground and on the surface needs to be cleaned up. Changes need to be made in WIPS operation so things like the fire and the radiation release don't happen again in the future. So there's a lot to do, and this is a continuing issue, and it's a continuing potential threat to people for a long time to come. Last week you said that an independent investigation would be called for to look into the accident and determine what happened. Who might be part of such an investigation, and might you be part of that group? I think and I hope there are going to be multiple investigations. There's formally been an accident investigation board convened related to the fire. The contractor for WIP, Nuclear Waste Partnership, has brought in some outside people. They haven't identified by name who they are, but I am confident that at least some of them would be outside independent kind of people that are going to be involved. The Department of Energy is going to have some people there is an independent oversight group that Congress set up that's called the Defense Nuclear Facilities Safety Board, which at major nuclear weapons facilities like Los Alamos or Lawrence Livermore or the Pantex plant have permanent people there. They, the DNFSB doesn't have permanent people at WIP, but it has in the past investigated and found the fire suppression system at WIP to be inadequate. They have 
have had people back at WIP since the fire and are still there looking at the radiation release. So I think there are multiple kinds of investigations. I think that some of us will think there should be more. Whether I'm going to be part of an investigation, from my standpoint, isn't important. I would like to make sure there are expert independent people that are involved and that all the information is made public so that people like you, people like me, people, whether they're on the official investigation or not, will be able to access the information and ask questions and come to their own conclusions about what happened and what's being done to try to fix the problem. Don Hancock of Southwest Research and Information Center. Next, we spoke with Dr. Katherine Euler of Mama Bears Against Nukes, based in Arizona, less than 100 miles away from WIP. Dr. Katherine Euler, welcome back to Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you, Levy. It's good to be on your program again. First of all, give us a sense of where you are and what your current understanding is of the radiation leak that happened at the WIP plant in New Mexico. Okay, we're in southern Arizona right now, and the WIP facility is in southern New Mexico, several hundred miles to our east. And what has been happening on the ground in your area and your understanding about the area around the WIP plant in Carlsbad? There was certainly a lot of concern among members of the public uh, at the Tucson Peace Fair uh, the other day. And it looks like the releases of radiation are primarily going towards the east and northeast from the facility. So it's unlikely that Arizona got any of this fallout. There are definitely some releases. Now, the Department of Energy did not uh, give us any numbers until, uh, I believe, day before yesterday. On Monday, they had a press uh, conference in Carlsbad uh, with the local people there. And video of that conference is available online from the, from the local radio station. It was only at that time that they released the actual figures in Becquerel's and in the dose equivalent, which in the United States is in Milliram. So they released a figure showing that in one of their filters, the A filter, which is on to the west of the facility, uh, not where the wind blows. I, I notice on their press release they have one, two, three, four different air sampling sites here, none of which are either to the north or the east of the facility, which is where we would expect the highest dose. These figures that we have are, are from uh, four different sites. The accident occurred on February 14th. This is what the D- Department of Energy has told us. The highest readings were found on February 15th, this dose equivalent of between 2.4 and 3 milligram were found on February 15th. The readings that the DOE has released from February 17th and February 18th are much lower. They are about 2.4 disintegrations per minute, so much lower than the initial release of 36 disintegrations per minute on the 15th. It does look like the initial release was much higher than the releases that occurred after they put the filtration system in place and and stopped the airflow from the underground facility. Okay. I will freely admit that I am one of those people who still, even after all this time, is confused by the different radiation readings. Can you give us some context for understanding what those numbers mean? Yes. The... In 
Environmental Protection Agency has a, an air standard of 10 millirem. In other words, members of the public are not supposed to be exposed to more than 10 millirem of airborne uh, radionuclides in any one year. That's just what they're saying is okay. It doesn't mean that physiologically it's okay, but that's just what the and, official standard is. Yeah, the EPA standard is also, according to all the independent scientists that have looked at this, EPA standards are also quite high. And the EPA standards, like the DOE, they try to emphasize external radiation. What can you tell us about the DOE comparison of the radiation dose released at WIP with x-rays? They are comparing apples and oranges. They say a 3 milliram airborne plutonium exposure is the same as 10 milligrams of an x-ray. This is what they say in their press release in their attempt to reassure the public. These types of radiation exposures are very, very different. An x-ray goes through your body and out the other side. If you breathe in plutonium, it will stay in your body for the rest of your life, irradiating those cells and causing ill health and uh, cancers. So they are basically engaged in deceit when they are trying to compare internal radiation with external radiation. It's the difference between, oh, let's say if we can compare internal and external radiation uh, exposure with warming your hands at a fire. Okay, So you're standing in front of a fire, you warm your hands at that fire, and you get an external sensation of heat. If you instead reach into the fire and pick up a live coal and eat it, that exposure is going to cause very different physiological effects. It's the same when you're talking about internalized particles of plutonium that you breathe in. They have much more dangerous effects inside the body than you just go to the doctor for a chest x-ray. X-rays are not harmless. We need to reduce our use of X-rays. But an X-ray will go, the gamma rays will go through your body and out the other side. And with breathing in particles of plutonium, that internal exposure uh, will stay with you for the rest of your life if you breathe in those particles of plutonium. So people need to do everything they can to not breathe in plutonium. So, for example, even in this press release that says that the millirem, the airborne millirems uh, near the site would be between 2.4 and 3 millirems, if you stood there for five hours, you would then get the EPA annual dose for airborne radionuclides. So clearly this was a dangerous release, especially because we know that it was plutonium and americium. And plutonium... Yes, it can be stopped by a, a mask or a filter of some kind, uh, but if it does get onto the soils, if it gets into the air, if you breathe it at all, if it gets into your food, you can ingest it. Of course, the, the greatest danger is the inhalation of plutonium, um, which has been shown to cause cancer at vanishingly small doses. I actually don't like the word dose. It makes it sound like plutonium is a kind of medicine, but um, we're talking about the most poisonous element known to humanity. Really, it's a false premise uh, and a kind of deceit that the DOE engages in to compare external radiation from an x-ray with the internalization of particles of plutonium, which even vanishingly small 
uh, amounts of plutonium, if you breathe it in, can and will cause a fatal cancer. They haven't found a small enough particle of plutonium that will not cause cancer in the studies that they did with beagle dogs, for example. You're with the group Mama Bears Against Nukes. What, if any, actions are you planning to take in response to this radiation release at WIP? We've been trying to do the basic public education which counters the lies of the nuclear industry. The public needs to wake up and we need to understand that even if it's not the trillions of becquerels that uh, some of the apocalyptic and inaccurate uh, websites were talking about in terms of this WIP uh, radiation release, there were people who were calculating all kinds of things they're calculating as best they can to try to understand these plutonium releases, but the reality is the only actual data, official data we have is from the Department of Energy. They didn't release it for many days, and when they did release it, they released it uh, trying to downplay it, and they didn't make any reference at all to the EPA 10 milligram airborne standard. So we have to understand that the nuclear industry has a vested interest in line to the general public because there are hundreds of billions of dollars involved uh, worldwide in this industry that wants to stuff all of their nuclear waste into the deserts of, of New Mexico. So clearly if it, it's designed to last for 10,000 years and now it's having a radiation release after 15 years. So we don't have any safe place to put nuclear waste and we need to stop producing it. We need to shut down everything that's producing it. Dr. Katherine Euler of Mama Bears Against Nukes. To correct one thing Dr. Euler said, Arne Gunderson and Fairwinds.com are not currently taking and testing on-site radiation samples from WIP. If that changes, we'll let you know. Finally, we checked in with Mimi German of Radcast for some insight into those pesky EPA radiation monitors that never seem to be working when we need them to be working. What we know is that non-essential personnel are not working at the facility because the radiation counts are still too high for them to come back in. We also know that essential personnel are working somewhere in the facility. One of the things that we do know is that the WIB facility has sent off 300 air filters to a laboratory to detect for any kind of radionuclide that they find. According to the officials at WIP, of those 300 filters, the numbers are so low that they don't expect to know results for three weeks. What that means is, if this is true, in fact, is that it's going to take the monitor that reads these filters a longer time to detect what is in those filters. But I would like to debunk that language just for a moment. For them to know that the numbers are so low in 300 filters means that they know something. What we don't know is what they know. We've been told on one hand from the DOE, we've been given a number of 4.4 million disintegrations per second as one measurement. And we've been told numerous other measurements from the EPA, neither of which or none of which coincide with the other. So what we have left is confusion. And that's really where all of us are today. 
I look forward in three weeks to have the results of those filters to find out what exactly is in those. And we'll report back on nuclear hot seat when we get them. Another issue that's been coming up is, are the RADnet monitors up or down? One of the things that we've discovered with RADnet over the years is that RADnet can be up doing readings on monitors or down and not reading at all. This is up to the whim of RADnet. What I do know, and I know this personally because I've been looking and so have some friends of mine who look for this particularly, are the readings, the line graphs for Carlsbad, New Mexico. And we have had these line graphs for days, for weeks. So I'm going to read a couple of these numbers from the line graphs so that you know what's been going on in Carlsbad according to the EPA. We see here on February 19th a big spike from all the way down to 125 counts per minute up to 215 or so counts per minute. That's on the 19th. When we hit 220, it hits close to 220, and then it counts per minute, I mean, on 220, goes back down again, and by the time we get to 222, that line graph shoots up to 225 counts per minute. Now, this is detecting radionuclides and amounts in gamma. What we want to know is what the alpha readings are and the beta readings, and we do not have those. The EPA or RADnet doesn't give us those graphs. Apparently, they don't really concern themselves with those graphs. And the reason that we need to know alpha and beta is that that's what plutonium and americium are. So, again, it's a lot to say, and it comes back down to the fact that we don't know a whole lot. Mimi German of RADcast. Mimi will be back with the RADcast radiation weather report in just a few minutes. And, of course, we will keep monitoring what's happening in New Mexico at the website. There's going to be a radiation protection tip specifically for people in, around, and downwind of WIP in just a moment. But first, I need to ask, how do you like getting your nuclear news update each week from Nuclear Hot Seat? Does it make you laugh? Do you find you get value from the interviews? What is that worth to you? The cost of a latte? A download from iTunes? Here's what I'm asking. I need your support just once this week. Skip the mochaccino and send the money you save to Nuclear Hot Seat so this work can keep growing. Big red donate button on homepage. Hit it, follow the prompts, and thank you so much. We ever meet in person, maybe I'll treat you to that cup of coffee. Only I'll make it myself and take it in a thermos so that we can go out in nature and sit there and enjoy our coffee and be away, at least for the moment, from all things nuclear. Hey, John Stewart, what you doing for Fukushima, huh? March 11 is just around the corner. Got your report cooking already? Doing the research? Finding the one-liners hidden in the ever-depressing news? If not, I am your writer. Call me John Stewart. Anybody out there have a connection with John? Get us together. My gratitude, if you can. Because the world will never be the same. And now, here's Radcast. This is Mimi Gurman for the Radcast Report, radically relevant and the first of its kind. 
The National Radcast Report for February 25th. Salisbury, Massachusetts is 38 counts per minute and Oneonta, New York, 40 counts per minute. Woodbury, Connecticut, a low of 34, and Durham, North Carolina, a lovely 29. In St. Paul, Minnesota, we have 31. All the way across the states in Lewiston, Idaho, 33 counts per minute. In Alpine, Texas, we have an average of 60 counts per minute with a high of 96. This is a bit of a concern for us since Alpine, Texas is south of Carlsbad, New Mexico. So we're going to keep our eye on Alpine. Rapid City, South Dakota is 39. North Portland, 32. Powell Butte, Oregon, which is just outside of Portland, is 28 counts per minute. Tenino, Washington, 34 counts per minute. And Olympia, Washington, is 26. A couple of readings outside of the U.S. We have Taipei, Taiwan at 41 counts per minute with a high of 78. Newfoundland, Canada at 57 counts per minute and a high of 58, which, by the way, is particularly high for the eastern seaboard. This is Mimi German for Radcast Report on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you, Mimi. Here's the week's radiation protection tip, and this is especially for those of you who are downwind from the WIP plant in New Mexico. Plutonium is a killer if it's inhaled or ingested. However, Did you know it could be stopped by a cloth barrier? That's why you need to be wearing a mask. You don't have to go full Kevlar or do something that looks like you're scuba diving. Even a surgical mask will put a barrier between you and that stray plutonium atom, so cover up. If it makes you self-conscious and people look at you, take that opportunity to tell them what's going on, why you're wearing a mask, why they need to. It's an opportunity to raise consciousness. Two other steps you can take to protect yourself. If you do not yet have a HEPA air filter in your home, get one, or more if you need to cover a larger territory than one filter can manage. And with the chance that there has been some radiation in the air, remember your car's air filter. Now would be a great time to get it replaced, and to keep replacing it frequently until this danger is over. At the same time, let your mechanic know that whoever works on air filters close to Carlsbad needs to wear a mask when removing and disposing of old air filters. Heck, they should even get a radiation monitor to make certain that they won't have employee health problems from radiation down the line. Activist shout-outs this week start with Chisu Hamada, originally from Japan, currently living in San Francisco. She has been working to coordinate protest efforts around the world to mark the third anniversary of the start of the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster three years ago. She's created a website that lists all the known events taking place on and around March 11, just two weeks away. She explains some of the events as well as her part in them. How did you decide to put together an international calendar of Fukushima anniversary events? We are trying to make it um, nationwide in the USA first. We tried to organize to the 17 Japanese consulate and the one embassy in U- USA synchronized petition action. We organizing, giving the petition directly to the consul 
and then write to a Japanese uh, prime minister demand to shut down all our nuclear plants in Japan. And that is spreading to even the uh, internationally. So far, the Berlin and the, uh, London, they do maybe uh, same thing. And then half of 17 locations, we got the reaction that they will participate. Besides presenting the petitions to the Japanese embassies, mm-hmm. I liked your image of a synchronized petition action. Besides that, what other actions have you found out that people are taking to bring attention to Fukushima's third anniversary? The March 8th is uh, International Women's Day, and then Code Pink are doing weekly or monthly uh, peace walk. But this time is for uh, women's, for Afghanistan, but also Fukushima women's. We really honor them to uh, march on the uh, Golden Gate Bridge. And that is really bring out to the uh, Fukushima anniversary awareness. How does it feel for you to see all of these pledges of response and action coming at you from all over? To see this many people stepping forward to be able to make the Fukushima anniversary more visible? I am very grateful. Really need uh, 17 places people get together because we have a reputation that Japanese government is very weak from the outside pressure. We really want to uh, pressure them. And then the, so far, every month rally we are doing, uh, we did almost last two years, it's been successful because the consul promised to bring letter to Tokyo. So the Tokyo must be receiving. And then this is a petition law we call in Japan. We have, we, they must accept our letters for the uh, government. So that I like to use this as a weapon or a method that we're going to keep on giving to them demands and then petition there. Overflow from the outside of Japan will be, I think, very useful way to pressure them and give them a voice to them. What do you plan to do after these March 11 events as you move forward? Some of the members of our uh, no-nukes action are going to Japan and then interview people, film people, and then bring back, and then we organize maybe report session for the collect my people. So we are keep on still informing, telling the conditions and then I am sure that uh, we are doing, continue to do every 11th of month a rally each month. In Japan, they do every Friday in front of the prime minister residence. I think we really cannot do every week, but at least every month we're going to continue. So we don't forget uh, Fukushima. That Fukushima people wanted us to not forget. So many things are uh, try to cover those miserable, terrible conditions, but we really cannot forget. We still have to work hard to save them, especially children. If the listeners of Nuclear Hot Seat wish to support your work, what can they do and where can they go to get more information? Please visit our uh, nonukesaction.wordpress.com. All the information there, 
or event, whatever we uh, plan, uh, we'll be there and then we do sometimes fundraise because we have no sponsor, of course. So we have to do here and there to have film showing or we invite sometimes people from Japan, activists or expert. So you can see all the information on our blog. So please visit the website. Chisu Hamada. We'll have a link up to Fukushima 3rd anniversary events on our website, nuclearhotseat.com. Further shout-outs to Myla Reason and Eileen Mahoud-Jose for leads to information that helped me with my stories this week. And Joni Ray is burning it up, turning nuclear hot seat audios into YouTube videos. No elaborate visuals yet, but man, she's got a lot up there. You can subscribe to the new YouTube channel, Nuclear Hot Seat Videos, and know that we're working on the eternal infernal sound challenges, and hopefully we'll have them worked out before long. Final thought comes from Jacques Cousteau. The common denominator in every single nuclear accident, a nuclear plant or on a nuclear submarine, is that before the specialists even know what has happened, they rush to the media saying, there's no danger to the public. They do this before they themselves know what has happened because they are terrified that the public might react violently, either by panic or by revolt. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, February 25, 2014. Material for this week's program has been researched and compiled from ENENews.com, Reuters, CNN, AP, The Guardian, WBIR, Carlsbad Current Argus, Carlsbad Environmental Monitoring and Research Center, CBSNews.com, AJC.com, French Weather, KSL, National Wildlife Health Center, LA Times, NHK, Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, Asahi.com, Iori Mochizuki and his blog, Fukushima Diary, EvacuateFukushimaNow.wordpress.com, BBC, Before It's News, Plots.com, and the Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook community. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weber, looks like Weber, sounds like Weber. Nuclear Hot Seat is syndicated by UCY.TV. Our archive is available on iTunes or at NuclearHotSeat.com on the blog page. All comments are welcomed as long as you keep them civil. Nuclear Hot Seat is the activist voice on nuclear issues, so if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at NuclearHotSeat.com. We are copyright 2014. Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed. Permission to reuse is granted as long as proper attribution, website, and email are included. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that San Onofre is still shut down forever. That was not the case when this podcast first went on the air almost three years ago, but it is the case now. We did it. You can do it. And we've all had our nuclear wake-up call. Now do not go back to sleep because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.